You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Park. I'm uh, blessed to be here. I pray that you are as well. Uh, for those of you guys that are part of our, as Bobby says, Hyde Parkian family or whatever it is he said, I'm glad to see you as always. And those of you guys that are visiting, I'm even more so glad to see you. And I pray that you are spiritually fed this morning by the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit touches you in a way that you've never been before. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we have been talking about the life of David. Uh, up to this point, and we have definitely seen, we all know that David is known as the man after God's own heart, and so far the stories prove why this would be true. We've seen David as a small child who conquered a giant by himself in the faith of God. We've seen him rally to become uh, a leader in the military, given troops by the kings. We've seen him take thousands of men and sometimes hundreds of men into cities and, and claim them for uh, Israel. Uh, we've just seen him conquer the battlefield from a young age up until now, and we have now seen him take over uh, as king in uh, chapter 11. But we, we're at this awkward, this awkward part because... Uh, so many people have heard this story. So many people have preached this story. And the highlight is always that this is that crash and burn moment uh, for, for David. And uh, this Bathsheba incident was the, the low point uh, where he just completely lost track of everything. And uh, luckily there's the redemptive story that, re- that restored him to being the man God called him to be. But... Uh, my challenge is that he was, he was in a dark place long before he even laid eyes on Bathsheba, and we'll talk about that. But as we talk about that, I pray that it reveals to you three things about uh, sin this morning, and that's the power of sin, the consequences of sin, but more importantly, God's forgiveness of sin. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the narrative of him sleeping with Bathsheba and uh, getting her pregnant and how he, cont- he, he tried to contain and cover up that sin, which just led to this snowball effect. Uh, but before, before we get into that, uh, I wanted to, as I was reading this, I began to just think of uh, different topical uh, concepts. And I began to think about how, I mean, my, my God, isn't it great that our faith is not based on how strong we hold on to God, but it's based on He's holding on to us. Amen? It doesn't matter how deep of a spot you get. It doesn't matter how much you let go. I like to think about Him having us around the waist. And, when, you know, I, I think about my son right now. If he's not happy, he's flailing all over the place. It don't matter. He ain't going nowhere. You know, I got him pinned tight to my chest, and he's just flailing everywhere. That's us. You know, we, 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 we feel like we've let go, and it, but it doesn't matter because He's holding on to us. And the illustration that came to my mind was... Uh, me and my wife, we did swim lessons for like eight, nine years. We did swim lessons forever. That was our reputation uh, in Pembroke area, and then it moved to Lumberton, and people just wanted to do swim lessons, swim lessons. We, we loved it. We absolutely loved it. Uh, but I praise God that I, I would use the word called, but after some conversations, on, after a long day of swim lessons, I don't think she would say she was called. But I praise God that she had the little, little kids that are, have never been in a pool that situation, I got the kids once they kind of already knew a little thing or two, but my, my side had its negatives too, but I remember I'd look down at that edge of the pool, and those kids were just all over, the, big, the heads bigger than the bodies, just floating around and just flailing, and they were terrified because they didn't have confidence. They, they weren't comfortable, right? And because of that, we used so many tubes of Neosporin on her neck because they had the death grip fingernails, they were two knuckles deep in her clavicle. I mean, they were just, I'm not going nowhere. Because they were not comfortable and they did not have confidence. Well, then they get to my class and all they know how to do is, you know, they leave her with doggy paddle and I can bob a little bit and float a little bit. That's it. But these jokers come to my class like, woo! 
And I'm like, they got that much confidence, and they feel like they don't need to hold on to nobody anymore. I got this. So she used 10,000 times more patience than I did and Neosporin than I did. I used my lifeguard certification 10,000 times more than she did because their lack of confidence and their lack of comfort led them to have an understanding of life preservation by holding on to the person in control. Y'all are starting to see where this is coming around. But when they gain that confidence and when they gain that control and that comfort, all the bars were off and they didn't realize that they should have been holding on until they had water in their lungs or until they were sniffing up water, until they were like, woo, fun, and then that face changes. It's the same face you always see. It's the I'm in trouble face. And sometimes we have to like let them struggle a little bit so they can see the calm down, you can do it. But then when the, so they're sitting there, you know, doing this, but then we see that one that one face, the like this is serious, you know. <laughs> we have to step in. So I want to talk today about how the reason David was messed up long before he looked at Bathsheba was because he grew comfortable, he grew confident, his pride grew, and he felt like, I got this. God, focus elsewhere. I've got this. So as we look at the text, I want, to, uh, I want, to, I want you guys to understand that this story is, is I, I, I said in first service, I'm reluctant to use the word story because when I came down south, I learned that story apparently means a lie. You're telling stories. You know? uh, okay. So I'm reluctant to call it a story, but this narrative, this, it, it, it's true, it happened. Okay, I know that. I'm saying this particular section, uh, don't, let it think, don't, don't think that it's about David. Don't think it's about Bathsheba, as well as the rest of the Bible. The Bible is not about these people. God is using these people's lives to talk about himself. Understood? We got that as we go through this? When you read the scripture, and I tell my English students all the time, I don't care if in 10 years you can't tell me who Romeo and Juliet are. I don't care if you know the Canterbury Tales. I could care less. But you better be able to express your opinions. You better, all the things that I use stories to teach. Same thing with God. He put these things in here, not because he wants you, and it's good to have that head knowledge, but not because he wants you to memorize the genealogy of Matthew or all the Beatitudes. Those are good things to have so you can you know, have that in your arsenal. But if you're reading it and seeing that and learning that without God's face being revealed to you, take a step back and check out your motive on why you're reading. And that's why he's not afraid to show who we would refer to as a Bible hero in his truest form in his darkest moment. Because if it was about David, why would somebody want to share these types of things, right? Because he's on that pedestal list. He's, he's with Abraham, who lied and made his wife super, uh, super vulnerable. He's with Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver or schemer. He's with Moses, oh, Moses, who was always disobedient. Uh, he's with Peter, who wound up denying three times. And now we have David, who is going to lust, adultery, lie, murder. But when you think of David, that's not the first thing you think of. When you think of Moses, you don't think disobedient. When you think of Jacob, you don't think schemer. When you think of Peter, you don't think, well, we kind of give him a bad rap. We do kind of think, you know, right? But either way, we think of these people as heroes, and God is excited to show their truest form in their darkest moments because it reveals himself that much more. So as we go through this, be thinking about what God might be speaking to you. Starting in verse 1, I have the NLT. It's a weird version that I grabbed, but let's roll with it. In the spring of the year... When kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty bathing. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He had just uh, completed her purification rites. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. So let's stop there. <coughs> David is in a position at this point in his life. He's believed to be about 40. He's the king. He has Israel at its greatest it's ever been. Their finances are in order. Uh, their borders are bigger than they've ever been. The army is the army of the world uh, in, in their mind. They, they, have, 
the most success that they have ever had, and it's at the feet and hands of David, and he's in control of it. And as you saw in the video that we showed before, he was called into this position because of his heart for God's people and his heart to put God first in serving these people, so much to the point that he was also given a reputation of being a shadow of the king to come because he exemplified a lot of traits that, uh, that Jesus Christ has and that he puts his reputation in his life before, uh, or lays it down and puts people, his people before it. And so we think, man, how could somebody of this great stature be in this situation? Well, he put himself in a dark place with his pride and his comfort. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, kings must not take uh, many wives lest your heart has turned away from the Lord. David right now at this point has seven wives and ten concubines. They are under the Mosaic law. They believe one wife for life. That's where they're at. A man's got seven and ten concubines. His house is nasty. And he doesn't care because he's the king. Who's going to call him out? Who's going to tell him otherwise? Now, it almost hurts my soul a little bit to talk about David like that because he's one of my favorite heroes. You know, if this was a comic book, he's one of my favorite heroes. But in this moment, he is in such a dark place. And we haven't even, we haven't even talked about him looking at Bathsheba yet. He's in such a dark place already. The law does not matter to him. Well, at least not when it comes to him. Understand? Seven wives, ten concubines... All of that, all of them willing to do whatever he asks, yet he wanted more. Notice in the first few verses, it says that it's the spring of the year. That's when they would go to war back then because they traveled on dirt paths and the winters were always wet. So they had to wait for the paths to dry and that's when they would go to war. So spring, if you were going to go to war, that was it. Think about David's reputation. David grew up on the battlefield. We already established conquering the giant by himself with the faith of God. He continued to lead hundreds to thousands, and he, he grew Israel's borders to what they are today. This man is called to be on the battlefield. And if you continue reading, it shows that we are in a time period where kings went to battle with their troops. You see it in all the old uh, medieval movies, too. It, it, it went, we're even further back than that. So you show we're still not at the point where kings are above going to war. He Ride, supposed to ride out with them. And if there's one king that I would 100% would think would want to do that, it's David. My man pretty much grew up on a battlefield. All of his great accomplishments up to this point were because of his skills intact on the battlefield. Now we might say, well, he's a little bit older now. Not according, 40, uh, that's offensive. I'm not there yet, but somebody's offended, amen? Okay? Well, the war that they were in at this time, this battle, it was you know, very close to the city. So he figured he could just send people back and forth and get updates. Obviously, that wasn't a priority for him because he didn't do that. He just decided not to go. It's not as comfortable as his palace. When he wakes up, the city literally they're, they're fighting with is close by. He could have sent somebody to see how they were doing because look what time he woke up in the afternoon. I would kill for an afternoon nap right now, Okay. My son doesn't allow that to happen right now in this stage of his life. This is David sending troops while he's at the house, chilling, taking a nap. At the house, chilling, taking a nap. And when he wakes up, you would think David, the almighty battle warrior king, would say, I need to check on the status of the war. Nah. I'm going to go to my roof and overlook all that is mine. That picture that you saw at the very end when the word David came up was actually his, his palace in Israel. And uh, cities back then were almost an illustration of the class system. They were built on hilltops. The, one, the tallest on the top of the hilltop is obviously the king. And then based on your importance was how close you were built. And the further you go down, the more close to a peasant you would be. And so he would stand up there and he could see everything. Everything. And what I like... Uh, I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but I heard another, another guy preach on this, and the image that he used, or the, uh, the, the translation he used, or I don't know if it was his interpretation, but when he talks about the look that David gave Bathsheba, he said that he was walking and looking, and it, his eyes were caught by the shape of a woman bathing. I like that 10 times better than he saw a woman bathing. No, because the way he's about to treat her does not give her an identity. The way he's about to treat her does not give her any type of self-pride or self-confidence. 
He's literally about to, to ruin her life as well as his in this moment. He didn't look at her as a person with, and he had interest in that. He saw the shape of her and wanted that shape. 17 women, more than willing. But they ain't Bathsheba. They ain't the one I don't have. So he sends for people to, to figure out who she was. Why does he need that if he's got 17? Proverbs 9, 17 through 18 t- tells us that water's good, but stolen water's sweet. It's because he doesn't have it. He wants it. I preached you guys this morning that sin cannot be, cannot be tamed. Sin is not something that, you know, just give into it and, and it'll go away or uh, just this once or... Sin has to be conceived. Sin is ha- it has to be something you choose to do. You don't catch it like a cold. We like to think we do. Oops, I messed up. No, you chose to. Sin does not have the power to make you do it. It just has the power to present itself, and you choose to pick it up. So notice that his look. He didn't just glance. That happens to all of us, every single one of us. We glance at stuff all the time that we don't mean to or shouldn't, and we turn away from it. But it's when we look back at it, that, that second look or that or that. that that behold, it says in some versions that he beheld. He didn't just go, whoa, whoa, she needs a curtain. He looked and said, Ooh. okay. Hey, hey, Carl, come here. Who that there? Go get it for me. He beheld, he wanted it. That was her. And the issue is, because of what's going on in his house, remember I said his house is nasty, because of what's going on in his house, his servants even know the dark place that he's in. It's common to be introduced as the child of somebody, right? Like a genealogy. It's common to be introduced that uh, this is Jory, the, the daughter of Aubrey, right? That's, that's common. It's not common to be introduced by your spouse. I'm irrelevant in that, that genealogy apparently, right? That's not very common. That's his servant saying, like, yeah, that's, that's the, the daughter of, but uh, it's, it's also Uriah's wife, bro. Like, you're about to mess some things up, and it's in the law, too, and you're like the defender of that, right? He's like, go get her. Doesn't even care. It's almost like he is now feeling that because he was given this, this place of power, he is above the law he is called to preserve. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote where he says that when you get into those moments of choosing sin or not to choose sin, when you decide to step closer to sin, you begin to forget about God and only know the beast that's within yourself, that the satisfaction of your flesh. And that proves that Satan's, Satan's goal or Satan's tool isn't, isn't necessarily uh, to, to make you like hurt God. He just tries to make you forget about him. And one of the easiest ways to forget about God is to grow in your own comfort, right? When those kids start learning how to swim, now if Jory were to let them go at first, you see them, they're, uh, uh, the only reason they're kind of swimming is because they're trying to grab. But as they get confidence, they forget about Jory. Oh, my God, this, right? Well, Satan tries to use that to his advantage, the, the confidence. He'll, he'll see us in our moments of confidence and pride. And it even happens to me. I remember there was a stage when I was in college where I would be like, like, I'm not about to pray for this little situation. There's people starving over there. He's concerned with that. He wants you to pray for that. But that was, even that little moment right there was me having pride, like, you know, I'll be the bigger guy and I'll just handle my own problems. No, no, we can't get to that point. See, when it comes to facing our sin, everybody sins, everybody sins. It's not about the sin that you have, it's about how you react to it. And that's, that's pretty much what I want you to get from our message as we go through it. The power of sin is that it just takes one look. But it is limited to the fact that you have to choose it. The consequences of sin is death and darkness. And you can choose to continue down the path of that or own up to it and receive the forgiveness of sin. When David found out that she was pregnant... We don't see anywhere where he sent a message back to Bathsheba. What we see is that he's, he's immediately gone into this freak-out mode. He's got this guilt. And so he says, I've got to find a way to, to, to fix this. I've got to find a way to fix this. When a normal response for me, for someone who's after God's own heart, would be immediate confession and repentance. But he's in that, like I said, he's already in that dark place. 
His immediate response is, I got to fix this. Send for Uriah. Go get Uriah, her husband. Bring him back. And he says, I just want to talk to him about how the war is doing. You see, the reason he's able to get away with saying, I want to ask him about the war, because Uriah is not some random dude. It would make sense that he asked Uriah about the war. Uriah has been his ride or die since he was a fugitive. Uriah is one of his closest friends. Uriah is in so much power that his palace is right up next to it to where he can even see the bath. That lets you know about Uriah. Uriah is his boy. It's messed up. Send for Uriah. I want to see how the war is going. He gets Uriah home and he says, you know, thank you for the update. You go take some rest at home. He said, oh, oh, you're married, right? Yeah, yeah, that is right. You are married, yeah. I'm sure she misses you. You know, y'all can hang out a little bit. Uriah says, no. I think about my brother when he was deployed. When he got home, all he wanted to do was go see his wife. You know what I'm saying? And you know what I'm talking about. He missed her like crazy. Uriah says, no. And he slept at the feet of the guard at the palace. So David tries again, but this time he gives him a little bit of, little bit of wine. Try to get him a little drunk. Maybe if I get him drunk, he'll just think about his passions. He says, no. I got men out there sleeping on the, on the, on the ground in tents. And you want me to go home to my bed with my lovely wife? I will not. So, of course, when we're sinning, you know, we, we get angry when other people do, do things good. We get angry when things, people do right things. So, of course, David's like... Just go sleep with your wife, dude. Why does he want to sleep with his wife? Because he'll never know it's not his kid. If they sleep together this close, close together, he can blame the pregnancy. Like, that's, that's Uriah's kid. And he can walk away unscathed. Just another way to cover it up. Instead of being the man that he's called to be and owning up, he covers up. You see, he felt the guilt. We immediately feel guilt because we're guilty. We feel guilt. But if we stop it at guilt, that's just going to put us into a state of self-preservation like David. It's going to put us into trying to correct ourselves rather than if we allow that guilt to convict us. If you allow it to convict us, that means you're allowing the Holy Spirit to, to infiltrate your mind a little bit and bring it before the God. Because see, see, guilt will lead to self-preservation, but if you go further than that, your conviction will lead to confession. This tells us in 2 Timothy 2.22, it says to flee from the passion of sin. And then we always stop there. I think about, you know, the grandmas, flee from sin, flee from sin, flee from sin. Most important part is the second part. It says in pursue righteousness. So rather than, and I was talking to Jeff about it, it's like saying, like, man, I got to quit cigarettes, so I'm going to go vape. You fled from sin to self-preservation of, you see what I'm saying? Or... Man, I'm, 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 I need to stop lusting so much. I'm going to turn my TV off. Laptop. And you're fleeing from a sin, but you're not pursuing righteousness. And it's hard because we are addicted and bred to, to serve ourselves. And this world doesn't make it any better. I'm not going to go into that whole, that whole sermon, but the word repentance literally means to turn around. And in this world, there's only two places you can face. You can either face the world or you can face righteousness. And if we are sitting here facing sin and Scripture says to turn from sin and we're trying on our own to turn from sin, trying on our own from sin, obviously the way to turn away from looking at sin and look at righteousness is repentance because repentance literally means to turn from. And if I turn from sin, I'm going to be facing righteousness. So when you can't do it on your own, Stop where you are. Confess that sin to God, and that repentance will turn you around. And when you awaken from that beautiful rest and peace he'll give you in that prayer, you will see that you are focused on righteousness, and it just got a little bit easier. Not saying that in that moment, woo, cold turkey, I'm done. But it, it, it just got a little bit easier. You've got somebody on your team that can handle that kind of thing. I can't think of how many people that I've talked to about the gospel and they say things like, well, I gotta, I gotta fix a few things because, I mean, if I get saved now, I know I'm still gonna drink. Or I, I, gotta, quit, I gotta quit smoking weed before I get saved because, I mean, I just, I know me and I'll, I'll feel bad about it if I sit here and promise them, you know, my life and then I go do that stuff. There's an imbalance in our mind about sin. Sin is death. Sin is death, no matter what. The person that shot up Columbine versus the person who dropped the F-bomb because they stubbed their toe. Sin is sin. We add humanistic qualities to sin to make ourselves feel better. At least I'm not doing that. All these different things. Man, David, lust, adultery, lies, and murder. At least I'm not there. 
you are there. If you sin, you're in death. And every single one of us sin this morning. We can't help it. So that should, that should tell you it's not about the sin. Because sin's equal. Cross playing field. Again, we've added humanistic qualities to it to, to justify and make things feel better. At the end of the day, we're all equal when it comes to that. Where we're not equal is our response. And here's why this should be called the crash and burn story. A lot of preachers say this is crash and burn because he slept with Bathsheba, because he got her pregnant, because all this, this, and that. It is not a crash and burn story because of that. Because that would make it a crash and burn because of the sin. He was sinning when he conquered Goliath. It wasn't in here, but he was sinning when he conquered Goliath. Had to be. He's a man. Right here, the reason it's the crash and burn story is because of how he chose to respond. He didn't respond to confession and repentance. He responded in self-preservation and trying to cover up. How does he do that? When Uriah refuses to take this rest, he knows that Uriah is going to find out because he's going to go back to war. And when he comes home and there's a kid, he knows he didn't sleep with his wife. Something's up. So rather than letting that happen, he writes a letter to the general. Verse 14 says, So the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. If I can't trick him into thinking it's his own kid, I just got to get rid of him altogether. Now, I've also heard this preach that he gets worse and worse. He started out just an adulterer, and then he, now he's a murderer. There's no worse and worse. David is on the side of death. He's on the side of death. He's living in a way that's just perpetuating death. Okay? There is no worse. He's just in this darkness. He's in this darkness. And it's the same David that literally in Psalms 40 and and 8, we hear, I delight in your way, your law and your light are in my heart, all this, that, and the other. And here's here's where he is at this point. But that's not where it stops. See, the beauty of David's story is that, one, he has salvation in Christ. He has salvation in God. He has belief in God. He's, he, he, he did make him the Lord of his life. But two, he's going to get a little bit of accountability from pe- people with a like mind. <coughs> if you look over in, in uh, chapter 12, I don't want to read through an entire another chapter, but just to kind of sum up this accountability that's going to happen, a guy by the name of Nathan is going to come. And we can kind of refer to Nathan as uh, David's pastor or David's, uh, it's just, he's just a, a, somebody he really seeks counsel in. He's, he's, he lives with him in the palace. He's a great, great mentor in a way. And so understand that at this moment, David has been hiding this for over a year. And so David's in that like kind of starting to breathe a little bit, feeling like he's come out of it a little bit, feeling a little bit more successful. Okay, I think it's behind us, you know. Um, and he, he's thinking, you know, I look good because I took in Bathsheba when her, when her husband was killed at war. You know, I, I, made this, I turned this into something good. I'll, I'll take care of that child. And, well, Nathan comes to him and he says, you know, King, some, some justice has to happen. Some justice has to happen because there's just something that's gone on and it's just bugging me to death. Of course, David, well, let me hear it. You know, I'm the upholder of the law. I'll tell you what needs to happen. He says there's this rich guy and he's got all that he needs, all the cattle, all the, all, all the sheep, all the land, finances, everything. Everything he could possibly need, he's got it. His family was coming to town. He wanted to cook a feast. But he didn't want to use one of his because then he would have one less. So he goes to the poor man who only has one, one lamb, bought it as a babe, grew up with him, fed it from the table, drank out of his cup, refers to it as I believe in some translations that it was almost like a daughter to him, kind of weird, but you get the point, right? That's what he takes, and he uses that for his meal. And what's the poor man going to do? The rich man's got all this power. 
So he stole it and killed it and fed it and left the poor man with nothing. Well, remember, David's still got that little thorn in his side of fear that people still might figure out what's going on, but it's a little bit on the background now. Now he's kind of back on his high horse again, right? His response, of course, is according to the Mosaic Law, you know, he needs to pay that back four times. But that thorn in his side still has that guilt that he never dealt with because he never confessed his guiltiness. So that guilt stuck with him. And he says, not only that, he should be put to death. Just took it way too far. And then I remember talking to Jeff, and we said that we both agree that Nathan must have like eight knuckles on his pointer finger because this is probably the biggest accountability statement in the entire Bible. I like to think he does like one of like just drops the foot. You know, what? Because he looks at him and says, you're that man. Or, man, what kind of person would do something like that? I, I think he should be put to death after paying it four times. Despicable. Well, I was talking about you. Immediately, all those feelings that he thought he overcame a year ago came rushing back in. I don't think Nathan gets enough credit. David gets man after God's own heart. Nathan gets, who's that? Just learned about him this morning. Right? It's kind of messed up. Thank God for Nathan. Because Nathan is, he obviously found out through intercession. Because who else would know besides maybe, uh, maybe some servants, but they would not dare speak on negative behalf of the king. But he goes there, and he holds him accountable. And he says, this is who I'm talking about. And this is what you said should happen. You have just condemned yourself for what you have done. He even tells him. He tells him that you have displeased the Lord. It starts in verse 7 where you'll see that eight-knuckle point. He says, Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel, and I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wife's and his kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that is, had not been enough, I would have given you that much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered, murdered Uriah the Hittite, with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by Uriah's wife to be your, by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says: Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. At this point, David has just been blindsided. Let's get back on the, the, the cheering for David's side for a second. Imagine how he's feeling right now. You thought you got away with it. Everything for the past year that he's been like swallowing. He'd be walking in the market and hear somebody talk about, uh, man, I heard he slept with da 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 da. Not even talk about him, but he's like, well, well. he thought he was good. And then he got sledgehammered all in one day. Oh, Nathan, well, come on in. Tells this story. Oh, yeah, put him to death. Make him pay back four times. That's easy. And the whole world just came crushing down on David. But see, the beauty of it is it was this wake-up call. And the wake-up call was not, you know, you need to get right. Blah, blah, blah. It was, you understand how desperate your situation is? You understand how big of a deal what you've done is? It was subtle. And then it led to a sledgehammer. So, thinking about how David feels, J.D. Greer has a uh, summit church in, in Raleigh area. He has a, a, an illustration that I saw, and it's a funny story, but I think it'll put us in that emotional understanding of where David's at. He said uh, there was this college student, his name was Mark, and his mom wanted to come visit him. And so she said, uh, hey, I'll come uh, visit you tomorrow. Just uh, give me some directions or whatever. And while he was talking to her, he said, now I do want to let you know I live in an apartment with a girl. It's completely platonic. We're not doing anything. Okay? Times have changed, Mom. You know, back in your day, the Beatles were edgy because they sang, I want to hold your hand. 
Uh, Times have changed. People do this all the time, okay? It's not that big a deal. And she didn't want to, you know, judge judge him and push him away. So she said, okay. And so she gets there. She's visiting, and this Stacy is beautiful. And she's just, you know, you know, a mom. You know, moms know. And so she just gets a little worried, but she suppresses it because she wants to trust her son, right? And so she just likes her clothes, and they're talking. At one point in the conversation, she's like, wow, it's a beautiful watch. And she asked to see it, and she tried it on, and they just continued in conversation, and this, that, and the other. Well, she goes home. A week later, a week goes by, and Stacy comes up to Mark, and she goes, hey, I, I don't want to say your mom stole it or anything, and I don't want to accuse her of anything, but I haven't seen my watch in like a week, and the last time I can remember it was when she had it. And uh, is there any way you could ask her? I mean, I don't think she stole it. Maybe she accidentally dropped it in her purse or didn't realize that she, she had still had it on her wrist or something. I, just, can you ask her? He's like, yeah, 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 she won't care. So he texts her. and says, hey, Mom, we're not trying to accuse you of stealing or anything like that, but we can't find her watch, and the last time we saw it, you had it. And the mom replies back. She says, well, I'm not trying to accuse you and Stacy of sleeping together, but if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found where I left it before I left. <laughs> totally made up, but pretty cool, right? So... Think about how that guy, Mark, is feeling in that moment. Uh, 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 uh. So when Nathan brings the hammer down on David, David's like, uh, uh, uh. Now he has to make a choice. How do I respond? Mark's sitting there. Uh, uh, it was laundry day that day, and we just pulled the sheets off, and, and it must have gone flying. We didn't see it. He could have. He could have gone the David route, you know, just covered up, covered up, lie, 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 and more and more sin. And that's where that story ends, so I can't continue that story, but yeah. <laughs> David's does not end there. At this point, you know, there's a whole bunch that goes into it. You know, uh, God says he's going to take that child away, and that child grows sick and dies. But before that even happens, David begins to fast, and he begins to lay the sword down. And he begins to confess and worship God and pray and beg, of course, for the mercy on his child that he doesn't want taken. But he decides to turn from the sin. He takes the guilt, lets it convict him, and confesses it. And now he's, to to repent, you have to turn. He was facing sin, he turned. So now he is facing righteousness again. Probably the first time in a long time he is facing righteousness again. And it's like everything just comes back to him. And he falls. And he picks up a pen. And if you want the reference of how beautiful this moment actually was, it's Psalms 51. Psalms 51 is in relation to this exact moment of repentance. And I, I encourage you to read that. It's beautiful. If I read it now, I'll preach on it. And we, we ain't got time for all that, right? But it is absolutely beautiful. So I think about a few, a few things that, that I want us to, to kind of dwell on. One, it's okay to get comfortable in the sense that you're confident in your abilities. And it's okay to establish stature. Don't think I'm saying, you know, his issue was becoming a king or his issue was getting good at what he did to where he was comfortable. No, our goal was to get those swimmers to never touch us again, right? But the moment that you feel like you can do it without God, that's turned into a pride issue. And that's the number one issue of mankind is pride. So somebody known as man after God's own heart, somebody known as the shadow of Christ to come, all it took was some pride, some stature, and some comfort. And if you were just to read this section about David, not any of the other stuff, you'd be like, that's probably one of the worst people in the Bible, isn't it? Right? Good, good thing we had all that pre-stuff, that expositional stuff before where we saw all the great things he did. Because if we just started here and you, if it was your first time coming to church today and I didn't do the video and I didn't talk about his accomplishments and I just said, all right, here we go. It was springtime and David sent men out to war while he was napping. Then he saw his hot mama and he called her over even though it was one of his best friend's wife. Slept together, got her pregnant. When he couldn't try to trick, his, trick her husband, uh, he just killed him. And then he went about a year, didn't say a word, and it wasn't until he got called out by uh, another one of his friends for doing it that he finally came around and got his stuff together. 
You're like, what a jerk. That's like bad, bad. But that'd be looking at him based on his sin. And we do that far too often as well. That'd be basing our, our, our evaluation on the type of man that he is on the sins that he commits. And like we said, sin is an even playing field. We need to stop judging people based on the sins in their lives and stop judging even ourselves and being too hard on ourselves based on the sin in our lives and start holding people accountable. We need to start being Nathans to one another, holding each other accountable, including ourselves. Because remember, it's not about the sin. Everybody sins. Everybody sins every day. What strengthens your faith is your response to it. Are we going to respond like Saul and let it be be the end of what God's called us to do? Or are we going to respond like David? It might take us some time. We might fall into moments of self-preservation. We might deepen our moments of despair. But here's the beauty of that. To finally get a clear understanding of your true despair reveals an amazing opportunity to that much more have God's grace and the fullness of his love. So don't think you're ever too far away. Don't think you're ever in too dark of a place. Because the greater the valley, the more of God it's going to take to fill it. You get to experience that much more God. Problem is, you just got to turn to him. Amen? I'm preaching to somebody in here. I know I am. So your challenge, as, as we leave from here, I think it got stuck in my beard. The challenge as we leave from here, guys, if you are saved, if you are saved, you have two two things. One, be a Nathan to other people once you've taken care of yourself. Okay? Don't be the person with the with the pillar in their eye. But two, stop sitting on guilt and self-preservation. Stop trying to take care of things on your own. And allow that conviction to set in so that you'll repent. No matter how small, there's nothing insignificant. If stubbing my toe and saying a curse word is equal to to all of these things that David has done, I need to stop overlooking sin and just saying, ah, I can take care of that one. I can quit on my own. Guys, you're addicted to sin. We're all murderers. All of us. Well, at least I didn't kill nobody. We all are. Because if we didn't sin, we wouldn't have had to nail Jesus to a cross. We are all accomplices to the murder of Christ. So it's time we stop thinking of ourselves as better than anybody, like David did as he overlooked people from his palace. It's time of us to stop looking at other people to justify ourselves, and it's time for us to realize that every day we do things that spread death across the place where God called for us to harvest life from. And once we start realizing that we need that daily cleansing, it says take up your cross daily. Once we realize that we need that daily cleansing, and not just realize it because tons of us have Bible knowledge. Tons of us know the principles. We all went to VBS. We all went to vacation Bible school. We all know all these things. We got to start doing it, folks. I'm not saying you have to walk up here every time there's an altar and pray. But don't make sin a little thing. There was a preacher one time that said, think of sin like an acorn. If you drop it, that's your acorn. Pick it up like you're in somebody else's yard. Drop it, pick it up. It's really easy to pick it up. Just pick it up. But if you don't pick it up, and, and nobody touches it for 10 years, you're going to see oak trees start sprouting out. I didn't know that. I didn't know that's where oak trees came from, but that's, that's the truth. So wouldn't it be much easier to say, oops, I accidentally dropped this. I'm sorry. I'll pick it up. Acorn. Then your neighbor to call you in 15, 20 years be like, yo, bro, remember that acorn you dropped and said whatever? I got a forest back here now. I need you to come help me pull it up. Man, I wish I picked up that acorn because that's a lot of trees to cut down and pull the roots out. It's a lot easier. So I, that's why I said it. it's much easier to quit sin the first time than the 100th time. Don't make light of sin. Don't make light of sin. And respond to it in a way that's appropriate. I love the song. It says, you know, you never let go of me. And I'll stand with arms, high and arm, uh, arms wide and heart abandoned. Literally. God, I give you every single thing. I made fun of uh, Jory's grandma one time in a sermon. I said, man, she gets up in the morning and prays which cereal to eat. Like, God, you want me to do Cheerios or Frosted Flakes? You know? And now I look back and I, I am jealous that she has such a personal relationship to where for her that feels appropriate. Because to me, that's, 
silly. And I'm like, if I lived with my roommate in college, I'd be like, hey, bro, what you think? Cheers. I'd ask him that. Why would I, why do I not have that personal relationship with God? Then I wouldn't be afraid to keep my little sins from him. How many of us shadow our sins to try to uphold our reputation? How many of us allow our stature to make us feel confident enough to let go? Well, remember, when you're in Jory's swim class, didn't matter how much you let go and flailed that big, unproportionate head around, she wasn't letting go of you. You would not drown. Your faith is not based on how tight you hold on to God, but man, does he love when you hold him back. Amen? Amen. My challenge to you this morning, guys, is recognize where you could use some cleaning up in your life. Once you get your stuff straight, be somebody else's Nathan because some people are really struggling. And the only way that we're going to harvest this, this world and, and get as many people to understand who he is as we can is for us to work together. Stop pointing fingers until you get yourself straight and then be a Nathan. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your op- this opportunity to, to come and worship you this morning. I thank you for uh, the word of God that you've given us that we can use it as guidance and and sometimes even entertainment, God, but more importantly, God, that you've used it to reveal yourself, God. I thank you for uh, the narratives that you give us and the people that went through these, these situations, whether difficult or easy, God, because through those narratives, we just learn about the beauty of your grace. We learn about the beauty of, of who you are, God. So as we look at, at David, God, I pray, let us have a heart that desires to serve you. Let us have a heart that wants to seek you daily let us not get so focused on on sin that we get the scripture backwards you tell us to flee from sin and pursue righteousness god but so many times we flee from righteousness to pursue a sin when we get in those moments of our life where we've been pursuing sin for so long it feels almost impossible to get back god i pray that today be the time when we realize it's never too hard just repent turn around and start running be like joseph literally running God, let us not be blinded by our sin to where we just go deeper and deeper into a further relationship with you. Help us to make you the number one priority in our lives so we can serve you to our full potential. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a need, I'd be more than willing to pray with you guys.
God, we just thank you for, the, again, this opportunity to worship you through our song, through our ties, through our hearing of your word. But God, I pray that we continue to worship as we leave with the responding to your word, God. As we leave from this place, please incline our hearts to, to repent to you and to, and to seek you daily, God, because every time that we, we find those little sins in our life and repent for them, it means that we're turning away and seeing you. And every opportunity we have to see you just brings us that much closer. So God, I pray that we just begin to have a heart that desires to seek your face more and more daily. Guide us and protect us throughout this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 